good thinking, nevertheless still finish up being contrary to the spirit of the gospel because they don't understand the foolishness of the cross. And the foolishness of the cross means simply that the way up is the way down. And the way of strength is the way of weakness. And the way of wisdom is the way of foolishness. The way of power is the way of, is the, uh, way of surrender. Let's go and look at this a bit further today as we go along. So, Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ, says Paul. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This has been a favourite verse of mine for many years. Many years, you know. Talking like 70 years ago. And back in my early teens. And somehow I came across this verse, I can't remember how, particularly other than this reading it in the Bible, but it kind of really resonated with me. Um, and I remember, I must have been 14 or 15 I suppose, and I got a big sheet of cardboard about the size of this lectern here, and some, we didn't have text colour pens and things in those days, so it was either coloured pencil or something, um, just pen and ink. But I found a book that had all, all the gothic sort of um, lettering in it, and I wrote out this whole text, this gothic lettering, it's very ornate, and I drew it up. At the time I thought it was pretty good. I imagine if I looked at it now, I was thinking, goodness me, what a disastrous piece of artwork that is. Because um, I'm sure it wasn't much good. But anyhow, I, I copied it all out. And then, I, somehow, um, one day I, I got a hammer and some nails and I went down to our local Baptist church, which is a, was then called Finsbury Park Baptist, it's Woodville North Baptist these days. And, um, they, uh, the church building was okay, but at the back of it was this rickety old hall that we used to have youth meetings in and social events and so on, just a timber hall. And I went down with my hammer and nails and I nailed this thing on the wall of the church hall. Didn't ask anybody, <laughs> just went and did it. Um, I didn't know, I thought, I didn't know anything if I visited the, the things there. Um, later on they built a new hall, but that wasn't the reason why they built the new hall. <laughs> but then I put this up there, crucified with Christ. Um, so it was a very meaningful verse to me, and I'm thinking about the foolishness of the cross. I mean, that was an act of foolishness too, but that was my foolishness, not God's. Um, but I was very enthusiastic about the things of God in those days, and, uh, and so I, wanted, I just wanted to get this thing out to people and understand. And I think I was probably more excited about the the, the uh, living the life I now live rather than the crucified at the beginning but I understood that somehow or other uh, this verse uh, portrayed the essence of the gospel that you cannot live the new life in Christ without the crucified, crucified life first and you cannot be resurrected without first dying and it's easy to get excited about being alive in Christ and enjoying the fullness of life and abundant life and all those beautiful things. But realistically, they all have a requirement, a pre-existing requirement, which is being crucified with Christ. And that's the foolishness of the cross, is the foolishness of the, the word we preach. And it seems foolish, because nobody wants to die. I mean, nobody in their right mind wants to die. It is, we, we love life, we hang on to life. Um, because such a precious gift and yet the fullness of life only comes when we understand the seriousness of, of death that's why we've been having songs this morning about the Lamb and about the cross <coughs> because I mean, Reds has asked me for the theme so we can fit all, everything together today in talking about that and then this affects every part of our lives this willingness to, to die for Christ and I'm talking in the broader sense now because although none of us physically wants to die, and the Bible in fact forbids us from suicide or murder, taking of human life is not our choice, but in a spiritual sense, we have the choice. In a spiritual sense, as Paul says here, we can be crucified with Christ. That means that our whole lives <coughs> come under the, this um, mandate, if you like, this um, condition of what it is to be a Christian. It is to be living in the light of the cross. I used to teach a, a subject at Tabor called Creative Living. And I finished up writing the whole thing down as a book called, uh, now called Living in the Image of God. 
I would have brought some copies that I ever had in me, but it's all sold out. And uh, though you can't get it as an e-book, if you wish, to my website. But in that book, <coughs> in uh, talking about this, this whole idea, I've got a statement that says, um, um, everything comes into focus through the lens of the cross. It's like the, the, the cross is like a big kind of um, magnifying glass or lens of some kind and it's only when you look through the lens that things become clear another matter like, like wearing glasses everything is blurry and then you put your spectacles on and suddenly it's all clear again and the cross is like that it helps us to see clearly and plainly what, what it really is to be a believer in Christ and it means fundamentally understanding the need that everything about the self and everything about uh, selfishness and everything about pride or anger or bitterness or envy or resentment, anger, all of that has to come under the cross. It all has to be crucified. It's only as we allow the cross to take those things that, um, that we begin to understand what it is to follow Jesus. Because you know, the, the gospel, Christianity began with suffering. Dare not forget that it began with the cross. That was the beginning. And of course we know, plus the cross was resurrection. But we can't jump to that too quickly. The cross comes first. And the suffering is, is in one way or another uh, is part of the deal. Certainly spiritual suffering means a willingness to just be crucified with Jesus. Listen, let's move on to some other verses for you. Um, Psalm 12, 24, 25 is words of Jesus himself when he was talking to the disciples about going to the cross well about going to his death now they didn't like the idea of course they protested as we would have done had we been there but he said truly 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 I say to you unless a grain of wheat falls on the earth and dies it remains alone and if it dies it bears much fruit and he goes on to say whoever loves his life loses it whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. So he explains the image, the images of a grain of wheat. As a grain of wheat falls into the ground, then it, then it suffers, then it dies. But um, if it dies, only then does it bring forth a harvest. <coughs> and uh, so he says the same with us, it's, as we lose our life, then we find it. When we find our life, we lose it. So it's, it's not in what we gain, but it's in what we lose in this foolish way that helps us to understand what it is really to become a follower of the crucified one. <clears throat> in 1979, uh, as a result of a whole lot of different wonderful, exciting and scary and traumatic things that happened, um, my wife and I and my associate Dennis Sleep and his wife Christine, we launched out in what came to be known as Tabor College. And uh, I was at that time uh, one of the pastors at the CRC Church in Sturt Street, Adelaide Christian Centre it's called these days and so um, they, I was to speak one Sunday afternoon at the afternoon service uh, as kind of a farewell swan song before I uh, stepped down from the role as one of the pastors there and took on the college so as it happened there was another guy as well who was about to start school so they gave me 20 minutes and gave him 20 minutes each to speak on that Sunday afternoon and we had to keep to the time because uh, there were two services that day. We, used to, we always had traditionally Sunday afternoon services because when the church started, uh, there was no Sunday morning public transport in Adelaide. Didn't start till after lunch on Sunday afternoon. So uh, people who wanted to come to a city church, uh, we had to have the time accordingly. And then, so we had the afternoon service, then there was a break where we could have fellowship tea in the evening service and uh, everything had to be you know, quite punctual otherwise things just dragged on but anyway time came for the other chap to get up and speak so he got up and launched into his topic talked about the new project he was starting and everything and um, then uh, he was to hand over to me now I had taken this text and I prayed over it and spread it over it and uh, I, mean, I had this wonderful message I was going to preach on this text going to be the best sermon I've ever given in that church. So talk about it for years to come. I was really excited about how I was going to give this message. 
Anyhow, my dear brother, 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 he got through his 20 minutes, he kept going. And uh, another five minutes, so that dropped my time down to 15. And he still kept going. Took another five minutes, he'd taken 10 minutes of my time, and he still kept going. He went into 15 minutes. And then at this stage, I'm looking, getting feeling restless, as Vanessa could sense this, and, uh, but I was not uh, comfortable. And she, she said, you take your time anyway, you take your time anyway. Well, I couldn't because we had these other things happening and the time was limited. And so he went on 17, 18 minutes. And then all of a sudden I realised what was happening. And I began to smile to myself. She looks at me, she says, says what's wrong with you? You've just had all your preaching time taken away. And while I was smiling was I realised... I was going to preach on this topic about dying to yourself, burying this, burying what you've got, losing your life. And here was God was saying to me, okay, what about your precious sermon? Shall we start with that? <laughs> Are you willing to lose your sermon today for me? And I realised God was asking me to live the sermon, not preach it. And so by the time I got up, it was, it was well into my, I mean, I lost more than my time. So I got up, I said a few things, and in five minutes I sat down again. Didn't even mention the text. I think I read it, that's all. And afterwards, some of my friends might say, you didn't even talk about the new college. You had 20 minutes. And uh, I said, well, I couldn't. I couldn't talk about it. Um, and so later on, as in, in fact, um, I was asked to speak once again before I left the church, so it worked out okay, I suppose. But well, I had to kind of learn this lesson about it's okay to talk about dying with Christ. It's okay to talk about being crucified with Christ. But sometimes having to live it is a different issue. But some good things came out of it, I should say. I had worked out a little story I was going to tell, an illustration. I was, I, I was going to take two, two grains of wheat and give them each a name and uh, show how the one that got buried was the one that brought fruit and the one that didn't get buried brought no fruit. And uh, I never used the story. But about 18 months later... Uh, one of the Pentecostal churches in Adelaide asked me if I'd write a little article for their youth magazine. It was a big church. And so I thought, I'm going to say a youth magazine. And I thought of something else. So I wrote a story about these two grains of wheat called Stumpy and Slick. And uh, how Slick was a really big grain of wheat that looked like he was all the promise of the world. And Stumpy's little filled up brain that was nothing. And if a Stumpy gets buried and Slick doesn't, and Stumpy's the one that brings forth the great harvest. So I wrote this article for that magazine thought no more about it until again a few months after that I got a copy of an English magazine, an international magazine was sent to me, a very glossy nice production there's my story in the magazine and uh, since then I myself have published it in the book I referred to before, Living in the Image of God and it has now been read by thousands and thousands of people and so the grain that was buried actually did bring forth fruit and many people have now read that story and you can read it too if you have the book but at the time I wasn't to know that. At the time all I knew was I had this world-shaking, epoch-making sermon that never got preached. <laughs> Bury that for the sake of the gospel and the sake of integrity and the sake of simply doing what God wanted me to do. And it was just as well I learned that lesson that day because sometimes when I visit places to preach, you know, I sit there in the congregation and they sing song after song or I sing, sing one song 15 times or something and uh, I see my time being eroded again. <laughs> I have to go through the same experience again. Uh, I went to one church for a couple of years back when uh, I had a 10 o'clock service due to finish at 11.30. They invited me to get up and speak at 11.15. Uh, so I had to say, oh well, <laughs> it's okay. But in a more serious issue, I mean, that was serious enough at the time. But seriously, over the years, many times I've just had to learn that experience of um, just dying to self. And sometimes it seems cruel. Sometimes it doesn't seem fair. I mean, why should the people be deprived of a, a message on the scripture when the previous guy was just written off for no good reason? It doesn't even seem just. And many things in life seem unjust. And life really is not very fair. And time and again we have to just step back from things because uh, God asked us to be crucified again with him. Okay, but there's a promise here all the same as then on. Uh, that uh, it, when, when it does die, 
Anyway, you see, when Tolstoy identifies much freedom, one who loves his life, lives it, whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Alright, let's move on. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 10, uh, Paul says, Always carry in the body the death of Jesus. So the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. And this brings us, I think, a bit further. In Galatians 2, he said, I have been crucified with Christ. As if once you've done it once, that's it. But now he's saying something more. He's saying, I'm always carrying about in my body the life of the Lord Jesus, the death of the Lord Jesus. It's always there. And elsewhere he says, I die every day. And this is an ongoing thing. We face it time and time again in all sorts of areas. Talking about Tabor, uh, some of you may, may recall that in 1987 somebody tried to burn our college building down. Anybody remember? You do remember? It's probably better. Anyhow, we had a major arson attack on our college building. It did hundreds of tens of thousands of dollars worth of damage. Um, lots of things were destroyed. My computer was destroyed. We had um, Cover Prohart, original paintings that were destroyed, or many of my teaching notes were burned, all my sermon notes all went up in smoke. A lot of people go, thanks for that. Um, my autograph Yes, we lost a lot of personal documents like those. The school kids, uh, the books we had from our, our kids' school books from our little kids at school that we kept in when they first started to write things. Lost all of those. We well, lost here, lost our marriage certificate, um, whole lot of things. Because um, we lived in a very small unit at that stage, and I kept a lot of those things in my college office. Well, it's quite a story how all that happened. And unfortunately, we never did discover. Maybe fortunately, never did discover who did it or why. Uh, but it was a major disaster in many, many senses. Um, I still remember getting. Woke up in the middle of the night with a dog was barking and yapping his head off and I got up to tell him to be quiet and walked out the back door of the unit which was next door to the college and there's a smoke flames pouring up and the college was pretty big, big bit of a shock and that was on a Sunday morning and on the following Tuesday we were to start major convention which we still started of course. A thousand people there but in the meantime it was pretty chaotic. But a couple of days later, after the convention, I was uh, down the street and in there uh, trying to get some things because I mean I had nothing left. I didn't even have a pen. I, you know, every bit of paper, every pen, every notebook, every statement. I mean everything was gone. The whole office, the fire was started under my desk, and, and I lost everything. And in one sense, it gave me a great sense of freedom. I mean my diary was gone. So I had no idea where I was supposed to be, where I was supposed to speak, or what meetings I was supposed to go to. I thought, wow, I've got a whole empty year ahead of me. <laughs> but um, I was down the street trying to get some, a couple of parts from a bike from one of my boys, and the shopkeeper had heard about the fires all in the paper and everything. And he said, uh, it must be a terrible thing to lose everything like that. And I said, well, actually, if you're no richer for what you have, you know poorer when you lose it. And he said, I never thought of it like that before. And to tell you the truth, I never had either. <laughs> I just blurted it out. And it must have been a word from the Holy Spirit, I think, because I'd, I'd never ever heard myself say that before. But I thought about it. If you know richer for what you have, you know poorer for what you possess. In other words, how do we measure ourselves? We measure ourselves by our possessions, even our families. Um, I mean, we value our families, we value our possessions, of course, but they don't add anything to us. We came into this world, as the Bible says, with nothing. We leave it with nothing. Uh, they add nothing. So when we've lost them, we've lost nothing. So being crucified with Christ means having an attitude that says, well, it doesn't matter. I'll use my possessions, I'll look after them, I'll take care of them. But if God desires I've had them long enough, that's all right. Because they don't add anything to me. They make no difference to who I am. Because all of that is, is dead as far as I'm concerned. It's all been, all been put on the cross. It's all crucified. And so if then God replaces that with other nice blessings, well, 
great, and enjoy the blessings, but if they're taken away as well, that's alright too. Because uh, we are crucified and we carry about every day the dying of the Lord Jesus. And it affects all sorts of things. Uh, we had a lady uh, years ago I used to pastor at what's now Port Life Church down in Port Adelaide. Or at, uh, what do they call it now? Port something or other. Uh, and uh, in those days we were in Rosewater. I don't know if you know that part of town or not, but Rosewater sounds just such a beautiful name. It brings up images of rose bushes and flowers and beautiful perfume and everything. If you know what Rosewater is really like, it's an industrial area. It's busy and there's diesel smoke everywhere, trains and buses and traffic. Although the cleaning up a bit. But anyway, um, we had this couple in this church, and, and uh, it's a typical cartoon couple. You know the cartoons you see of a big, strong, bustling woman and a tiny, weedy little man. They were like that, a little bloke, a husband, and she was a big, overweight woman. Seriously overweight. And she was very sensitive about it because it wasn't just that she was a glutton, in fact, she had a serious health problem. And, and so she was pretty upset that she, was, she didn't like being like that. But she was very, very, very sensitive. And, and her poor husband, if he any time said even the slightest hint that reflected on her appearance, she'd lose her temper. And talk about flying saucers and their home, and flying saucers and everything else. That was, you know, and she got really violent about all this. So they both came to see me one day and, and talked about it uh, as to you know, how they could solve this. And I just took them to a couple of these scriptures about being crucified with Christ. And so I said to the lady, um, to look, this means that really you're a dead person. You're a dead person. You've died with Christ. So how can you insult a dead person? How can a dead person be insulted? A dead person can't react. You're dead to all that. And so, like, uh, if I were to say to Brenton, Brenton, yours is the worst singing voice I've ever heard in all my life. Even though that's a lie, because he's got a very good voice. Um, is he going to get upset about that? <laughs> no, he's not. Because <laughs> he's dead. He's dead. He's dead to all that. He's dead to his pride. He's dead to his self-importance. That's what being crucified with Christ means, that, that you die to those things. So it should be impossible to insult a committed Christian who's crucified with Christ because you've died to that. In Jesus. And I am happy to say this lady, she, she saw it straight away. And uh, they, they moved on sometime after that. I don't know where they went after that. But uh, she, the fighting ceased. Her sensitivity dropped. And uh, she embraced who she was, embraced him instead of throwing things at him. And uh, life became much more peaceful for them. Because she realised that carrying about in your body every day is carrying about all the time this attitude that what, who I am, my self-importance, my pride, all of that really adds nothing to me. And if someone wants to take it away from me, well that's okay. Because my wealth is in Christ. My self-esteem is in Christ. My value of myself is in Christ. And anything that I am, anything I accomplish, it is in Christ. I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless I live yet not I but Christ lives in me, says Paul in Galatians 2.20. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. We could give a lot of other examples of uh, what it means to be crucified in practice, but, but it comes up time and time again, and, um, especially if you're in leadership, but, and everyone is in a sense, whether you're a grandma and a mother uh, or whatever. You know, we, we all have leadership roles somewhere, somehow. And sometimes we get criticised for that. Sometimes people say we're doing things wrong. And sometimes you can't do anything, you can't say anything. Because you know that if you protest and if you argue, you're going to hurt somebody else. You're just going to bite your lip and shut up and be quiet. And let time prove it. That's a, a lesson that one Nick Kurios could probably learn something about. Um, but, uh, Although for him it's probably more of a sporting tactic than anything. But seriously, sometimes you can't defend yourself. And I don't know about you, Daryl, but I'm sure I'll speak for you as I do for me. But there are times when I would love to have justified myself, but it couldn't be done. Because to have justified would have been worse than the insult. 
or worse than the complaint. I'm always very hesitant when I hear people criticise their pastor or say something I've left a certain church for that reason. And uh, sometimes they've got good reason, but I'm always a bit hesitant about just believing it too soon because uh, I can tell you some people that you talk to them, they'll say some pretty terrible things about me. <laughs> and I know that what we did as a church was right, and sometimes we've had to deal with things, but I know there are people that would certainly want to have a go at me if they could. Um, and some have. But you've just got to die to that. Because as soon as you start to speak for yourself, straight away your old self is rising up again, and the old body is getting up out of the grave, and uh, that spirit of being willingness to suffer for Christ is, is gone. I'm not talking about being stupid here in, in the sense of deliberately, deliberately hurting yourself and deliberately putting yourself down. There's no need for that. But it simply means recognising the fact that our security, our strength, our hope, our personality, our well-being, our self-importance, whatever that is, all of that is in Christ. And that's all that really matters. Okay, we have one more verse, I think. No, it's going too soon. Let's just say it. Again, back in those teenage years, one of the things that really blessed me was this little book. It's called The Calvary Road. Now, this is not the actual book I had, but it's because mine fell to pieces and it's long since disappeared. But this is another copy, but it's the same book, the same cover. And uh, somehow I came across this recently and it was such a blessing to find it again. It's a book that's written by a man named Roy Hessian. He tells how uh, in the, 19, the late 1940s there was a, a revival or a visitation, if you like, in Uganda, or East Africa as they called it then. And it was particularly marked by the fact that people in that revival became very convicted and convinced about their sin. So much so that in the Sunday morning service, had there been in their service an opportunity, uh, as we had this morning, for people to share, the most likely thing was that they would get up and confess their sins. And there was uh, weeping, there was tears, there were people falling on their faces. Uh, it touched the missionaries, which was the Anglican mission station where it started. You had an Anglican priest standing up and finding very difficult to do in a mission station situation with uh, formerly heathen people there. Very difficult for them to stand and confess their sins, but they did it too. And uh, it got a bit out of hand at one stage, and they had to make sure the people didn't go into too much detail because that became more hurtful and helpful. But there was this openness, this willingness. Uh, just for people just to lay bare who they were and to confess their nothingness, if you like, before God in, in, in themselves. And this book was, was sort of about that. Um, Roy Hessian talks about a whole lot of things here that really touched me very deeply. And I could uh, do a picture, some of them is a chapter here, comparing a worm with a snake, for example, and how the scripture says about Jesus, he was a worm, uh, and no man. Now a snake will fight back, but a worm won't. He talks about the difference between the lion and the lamb, which we sung about this morning, um, and a lot about the highway of holiness and the cross. And I want to read you a little bit, if you would allow me to do so, uh, that uh, is in the book here. It was one of the things that really touched me quite deeply. It said, At the top of the hill, guarding the way to the highway of holiness, stands so gaunt and grim the cross. There it stands, the cross, the divider of time, the divider of men. At the foot of a cross is a low door, so low that to get through it one has to stoop and crawl through, but it is the only entrance to the highway. We must go through it as we would go if we would go any further on our way. This door is called the door of the broken ones. Only the broken can enter the highway. Be broken means to be not I, but Christ. There is in every one of us a proud, stiff-necked I. The stiff neck began in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve had always bowed their heads and surrendered to God's will, stiffened their necks, struck out for independence, and tried to be as God. And all the way through the Bible, God charges his people with his same stiff neck, and it manifests itself to us too. We are hard and unyielding, we are sensitive and easily hurt 
We get irritable, envious and critical. We are resentful and unforgiving. We strive in our own strength and attempt to do by our own efforts what should be left to God. We are self-indulgent. How often that can lead to impurity. And every one of these things and many more springs from the proud self within. If it were not there and Christ were in its place, we would not have these reactions. Before we can enter the highway of holiness, God must bend and break that stiff-necked self so that Christ reigns in its stead. To be broken means to have no rights before God and man. And it, means, it doesn't mean merely surrendering my rights to him, but rather recognising I haven't any rights except to go to hell. It means that being nothing and having nothing, I call my own neither time, money, possession, nor position. And in order to break our wills to his, God brings us to the foot of the cross. And there shows us what real brokenness is. We see these wounded hands and feet, the face of love crowned with thorns. We see the complete brokenness of the one who said, Not my will, but thine be done. So the way to be broken is to look to Christ, to realise it was our sin that nailed him there. And as we see the love and brokenness of the God who died in our place, our hearts become strangely melted, and we want to be broken for him. I read that, and other things like that, 14, 15 year old, and <laughs> touched my heart. And um, I, I can honestly say uh, that book has had a lifelike impact on my life. I read it many times. And I just, just, God just spoke to me over and over again about the need just to crucify the flesh, crucify the self, and to be broken before God. I loaned it to a school friend, boy, my son, same age as me, not a Christian. And after a couple of days, he brought it back. And uh, I said, what do you think? He said, I haven't read it. I said, why not? I said, my parents had a look at it. And they said, you give that book back. You're not going to read that. Not having that book in our house. And so he brought it back to me. And I was astonished because I'd been so moved by it. And I realised now, looking back, that here were parents who thought, this is folly. This is foolishness. Why would you want to live like that? Why would you want to forsake all your rights and all your things so dear to you? And I can understand now why they said that. Because this is the foolishness of the cross. Of living a life which is of yieldedness to Jesus. A life that says we will do whatever he calls us to do. We will say goodbye to anything if that's what he wills. Most of the time, we, he lets us keep our houses and keep our cars and keep our clothes. And, and that's fine. But... but there's an attitudinal thing here, getting at it. And I, I remember as a young boy, just on my knees sometimes, literally in tears. Just, I remember reading John 8, 29, when Jesus said, I always do the things that please the Father. I remember reading it and thinking, how do you do that? How do you always please the Father? I remember weeping over that and saying, oh God, how do I do that? How do I do that? Well, I learned later that being filled with the Holy Spirit was a big help. <laughs> that made a huge difference. But even that, even so fundamentally it means, am I willing really to follow the example of Jesus and to live as he lived and to die with that kind of attitude? And of being every day carrying about in my body the dying of the Lord Jesus. There's a well-known hymn that uh, expresses this pretty strongly. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died. Let me paraphrase. When I consider the wonderful cross. Now that's a ridiculous thing to say. How can a cross be wonderful? A cross is one of the most barbaric, painful, ugly, awful forms of death ever devised. And Isaac was. says, when I consider that wonderful cross. <laughs> It's what we call an oxymoron. Something wonderful is actually something horrible. Now Isaac Watts was a, uh, lived in the late 1600s, early 1700s. And days not long after the Reformation, his father had been imprisoned twice just for being a preacher of the gospel in England. Twice imprisoned. And young Isaac Watts was um, also wanted to follow Jesus. He became more of a hymn writer than a preacher. 
He wrote over 700 hymns. And this particular hymn, when I survey Charles Wesley, who came along a bit later, and Charles, who wrote something like 7,000 hymns, and Charles Wesley said, I would give away all my hymns if I could have written one like this. He said, this hymn of I said, what's this? Worth more than... And when you think about some of Wesley's hymns, and they're magnificent. He says, I give them all away for this one. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, there is some thought that Isaac Watts' original line was, where the young Prince of Glory died. Jesus was only 30, just in his early 30s when he died. Young man. Where the young Prince of Glory died. My richest gain, richest gain I count but loss, and poor content. Think about that, poor poor content on all my pride. Pride we hang on to so dear. Just a big thing in our community today. We demand our rights. We have this whole thing, you know, called um, you know, the Pride Festival, the Pride Margin. Next year in Sydney there's going to be a huge thing called the International Pride Festival. Expecting thousands of people to come. The word pride. I said, what's that I call contempt and all my pride? And people are demanding their rights when they're saying, I demand my rights. And so they kill a baby in order to get them. Uh, I pour contempt in all my pride. Then forbid it, Lord, he says, that I should boast. Save in the death of Christ, my God. And all the vain things, now the word vain literally means empty. All the empty things that charm me most. All the empty things. I sacrifice them to his glory. And he calls us, look, he says, look. From his head, his hands, his feet. Sorrow and love flow mingled down. Sorrow and love mingled together. We typically say, well, blood and sweat flow mingled together. Sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet? He's talking about Jesus showing his love, but it's a sorrowful thing for him to do. It hurts to, it hurts to love. It hurts to love. Love demands sacrifice. Did he have such love and sorrow meet your thorns? Compose so rich a crown? Another oxymoron. Crown of thorns? Is that rich? What's us the question? Did he, has there ever been a crown more rich than that? Has anyone ever worn such a crown? In the last, the last stanza, I'm sure you're all familiar with, were the whole realm of nature mine. And then it's with the whole world mine. If the whole world belonged to me, that were an offering far too small. And probably give the whole world was truly too small. Love so amazing and so divine demands my soul, my life, my all. Now, there was a fifth verse that we never seen. And uh, this is the verse. And for some reason, it's one of these some these days. What he said, he's dying in crimson, like a robe, spreads all his body on the tree, over the blood. He's dying in crimson, his blood spreads like a red guard all over him. Then I am dead to all the globe, all the world. And all the world is dead to me. And that's really the essence of what this is all about. Um, the world means nothing. The things of the world mean nothing. We're dead to all that. And the world is dead to us, and we are dead to the world. And what a different place the world would be if Christians over the years had really lived like this. And many have, of course. Many have. But how different it would be if we all managed to do it. And there wasn't such corruption sometimes in some churches and some places. And people look back through history and they see people going to war in the name of Jesus and slaughtering each other in Christ's name. And what a contradiction. And we have a general to go out and, and send all the men in to lose their lives while they survive. Whereas our general sent his own life to die so that we could survive. And that's the spirit in which we live. 
It's really coming on the Lord's table now. And I want to go back to that word brokenness again. You all know this, uh, this verse of scripture stopped me off and say in communion. But when he had given thanks, this is what Paul says, Jesus, when he had given thanks, he broke it. He broke the bread and he said, this is my body. Now I put the word broken there in brackets because it's not, it's understood, it's not actually in the original text. But um, this is my body for you. He means broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. First Corinthians chapter 11. You've heard that read many times at communion, I'm, I'm sure. But it's an unusual word to use. Broken. In what sense was Jesus broken? His body was pierced and, and nailed. It was scarred, it was bruised. But broken is a very strong word to use. And I think it's coming back to what Roy Hessian says in this little book, The Calvary Road, about the need for us to learn the, the spirit of brokenness before the Lord. Being broken before Him. And that's something only He can do. You can't break yourself. Our challenge this morning as we come to take that bread in the wine is that we should recall something of what it means really to come to Christ. And, but, and repentance is just that, just being willing to die, willing to put everything to death for His sake. And it's foolishness to the world. My schoolmates' parents were, were appalled at the thought. How can you do that? Why would you do that? But love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my God. Have we got someone who's going to distribute the bread and the wine for us? Kingsley, Brenton, thank you. If you could just, when, yes, please go. when you receive the bread, if you could just um, hold that for the moment. Uh, um, sorry, uh, just just hold it until you are ready to just take it. In other words, spend a bit of time just meditating and praying. Because as you take the bread today, we are we're kind of saying, Lord, we are willing to be broken for you. But personally, I am willing to be broken for you. I am willing to every day carry about in my body the dying of the Lord Jesus the more we've taken the bread we'll take the cup all together right now let's just be in prayer and uh, just think about what you said this morning and how it might impact and affect you Just reflect on it, what it is. It's only a piece of bread, but it's like the seed in the ground. When the seed grows, then it brings forth fruit. So Jesus was like the sown seed for us. Mike, would you like to suffer a prayer of thanks for the body and blood of Christ? Father, we just give you thanks for this uh, precious life and yours that you gave up for us. Lord, freely you gave so that uh, we can come before that cross and live all our sin, all our pain. But Father, we you now give you all the glory and all the honour for the suffering you did for each and every one of us. Because you did it in the love, through all our pain. Father, you just looked up to the Father and continually gave him thanks. So, Father, this morning we will do that for you, Lord. We'll just continue to look to you and say, that thank you for what that precious gift that you've really given to each and every one of us. 
Father, just thank you. We just mm. give you all the glory and all the honor. And mm. we just love you in that praise mm. of Jesus. Amen. Yes. Let's start the cup together now. Let's continue in prayer now. Just continue reflecting on the cross. Maybe the Holy Spirit's talking to us in our hearts right now, areas where we've been proud and stiff-necked, unwilling to break. Let the Holy Spirit speak to our heart and life now. And touch your heart. Melt your heart if necessary. There are things for which you need to repent, we'll repent of them now. So we sang before, it's all of grace and we can't save ourselves. We can't make ourselves holy, but Jesus can. What we need to do is be willing to say, Lord, here I am. Here I am, I'm going to carry about in my body the dying of the Lord Jesus, so the life of Jesus might also be manifest. Blessed Lord, we thank you, Father. Thank you, Lord, thank you, Lord, thank you, Lord. A wonderful thing now if we could sing together that wonderful song on isolated, the wondrous cross. So if we have some musicians, please. And, uh, maybe we need someone to click the glasses too, perhaps.